Namaste, Mandela here. I'm very excited to collaborate with Explorer Maps, a small family business based in Missoula, Montana. Visit explorermaps.com to learn about how we are working together to connect people and place through art and storytelling. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. We are in the studio with Marty Essen, the author of the multi-award-winning Amazon number one best-selling in wildlife book, Cool Creatures Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents. I had Marty on the show a few years ago when we spoke about that book. This evening, we're going to be speaking to Marty about his new book, Endangered Edens, exploring the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Costa Rica, the Everglades, and Puerto Rico. Marty is also a frequently booked college speaker. His college program, Around the World in 90 Minutes, has become one of the most popular slideshows of all time. Marty lives in Montana with his wife, Deb, two dogs, and their three rainbow boas. Marty, thank you so much for coming back on the Trail Less Travel to speak with me. Well, it's always wonderful to be here. Awesome. Well, my first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up on the north shore of Lake Superior in Minnesota in a little town called Two Harbors, which is about uh, 20 minutes north of Duluth. We had a cabin 45 minutes from uh, Two Harbors that we would go to every weekend. We'd stay at the lake, and always what I would be off doing is looking for turtles, looking for frogs, uh, looking for snakes. And so that was kind of my getting to love wildlife, was just exploring for little creatures in northern Minnesota. How did you find Montana? We found Montana because my wife at the time was working at the University of Minnesota. We were looking for a place to go on a vacation, and my wife had a friend that she met through the university that had a cabin near Sula that he rented out. And so we came out here, had a great adventure, and this must have been 20 years ago. And on our way back home, it was a long drive from uh, Montana all the way back to Minnesota. And at that time, we lived in Minneapolis. And uh, just to kind of liven up the conversation, I said to my wife, you know, we ought to move out here. And I figured she'd say, oh, no. And she said, yeah, we should. And so one thing led to another, and uh, we ended up moving out to the Victor, Montana area. Uh, We don't actually live in Victor, but we live kind of on the side of the mountain in the country. And uh, we love it here. And you travel a lot. I'm just wondering, when you come back after a long journey somewhere in the world, does it feel good to come back to Montana? 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always have mixed feelings. You know, it's it depends really on how the trip went. I guess you kind of always have that feeling coming back where you wish you were still out there. But I love Montana too, so it's mixed feelings. It really is. Awesome. All right, Marty. Well, I had you on the show a few years ago, and we spoke about your book, Cool Creatures, Hot Planet. We're going to speak this evening about endangered Edens, but could you just let us know a little bit about that first book? Okay, my first book, Cool Creatures, Hot Planet, Exploring the Seven Continents, the title's kind of self-explanatory. We traveled all seven continents looking for rare and interesting wildlife, and that was a book that kind of uh, happened by accident. I run here in Montana. We run a, a small independent telephone company that does landlines called Essen Communications Corporation, and it was the 10th anniversary of Essen Communications Corporation, and one of the local newspapers, Valley Republic, came out to do a feature front page story on the uh, company. And after the interview was over, I walked the reporter to the door and said, I'll see you. I'm heading down to the Amazon rainforest. And the reporter said, really? What would you like to write a story about it? And I'd written for magazines and newspapers before, so I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I wrote a story that was a feature not only in the Valley Republic, but it was also a feature in the Missoulian. And after that story ran, if I was in a supermarket or maybe a restaurant, people would come up to me and they'd say, wow, we love that story. Are you going to write another one? So we decided to go to Australia and wrote another story that was in both newspapers again, and the same thing happened. And at that point, I thought, hmm, maybe I have something here. And I did a little research and found out no one had ever written a book on the concept of travel to all seven continents looking for rare and interesting wildlife. So we just continued our travels, and we did all seven continents over a three and a half year period. And makes that book really unique is not only is it a travel book where you're going to all seven continents looking for rare and interesting wildlife, but the other thing that makes it unique is we were traveling during wartime. Actually, right before the war, we went down to Antarctica on the day before the world's largest anti-war protests, and we're going to be down away from communications for several weeks, and we're worried, are we going to come back and find the United States at war with Iraq? Then we get back, and of course, the war had started. Our next trip, we end up going to uh, Malaysian Borneo, which is Asia. We land in Malaysian Borneo on the day after U.S. soldiers tore down Saddam Hussein's statue. And, you know, how would we as Americans be received in a Muslim country during wartime? And they treated us great, by the way. As we continue, the whole war theme kind of goes through the book on what it was like being an American traveling at this time. Uh, For instance, we end up in France Mm -hmm. right after members of Congress, after Republicans in Congress had childishly renamed French fries Freedom Fries and French Toast Freedom Toast in the uh, congressional cafeterias. Well, how would the French treat us when we go into France uh, after our members of Congress are being so childish, renaming French food Mm -hmm. uh, because the French won't support the United States? states in the war. So I've got a really poignant but funny story that points that out as we walk into this truck stop in France. And we're obviously the only Americans there. And you know, granted, we all look, kind of look alike. But believe me, when you go to a, to a different country, they can tell you're an American. Mm-hmm. And we walk into this truck stop and all these burly truckers in France are looking at us. And we feel, you know, just we can, we can feel their eyes upon us. And yet once we sit down, uh, all of a sudden they become friendly and they're drinking wine. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out how to eat escargot. And one of the truckers uh, gives me advice on how to eat escargot. 
And then one of the waiters at this truck stop patiently gave my wife a French lesson. And it was the neatest experience. And uh, so there's a lot of those experiences about what it was like at that time. Kind of a wildlife book, but it's also travel during the Iraq War book and what it's like as an American looking back in to the United States. And your new book, which just came out, Endangered Edens, exploring the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, Costa Rica, the Everglades, and Puerto Rico. What are the differences between the books? Well, the difference between the two books is I think you learn a lot. After you write one book, you look at reviews. And even though Cool Creatures, Hot Planet got great reviews, There'd always be comments that reviewers would put, you know, we really love the book, but we wish he had more photos. And uh, the first book, I think, had 84, 85 photos, and they're fairly small. We did it as an insert. And this time, my idea was to make it more of a photo book. There are still the funny stories and the poignant stories in the book, but there's a lot more photos. I think we go to 180 photos in uh, my new book, Endangered Edens. They're a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of almost like a hybrid travel adventure coffee table book. It's Mm -hmm. got both in it. It's kind of got the coffee table features where you've got the bigger pictures, real, real high resolution photos, but then it's also very readable as a travel adventure. Well, I'm holding the book right now, and I just opened up to a page, and it's the chapter Bat and Eyelash and Monkey Around in Costa Rica. It's got four beautiful pictures of very exotic plants. Absolutely fabulous, colorful photography in your book, Marty. Thank you. I'm wondering how you came up with all these interesting titles for the chapters. They just kind of come to me. One of my favorite title chapters is not only the Bat Around and Monkey Around in Costa Rica. We had two really fun adventures. Actually, we had a lot of fun adventures in Costa Rica. But the two that really stand out to me were the bats and the monkeys. During all of my travels, one thing I kind of missed is never really having a long experience with monkeys, because usually monkeys take off right away. And we had this great experience with howler monkeys. We were hiking through the rainforest, and we hear them, and you know, we think they're going to leave, and, and but they stay with us. And so we get to spend, oh, probably, we could have actually spent longer, but we spent about an hour with them. And then finally, we decided it was best to go and leave. But it was so much fun watching them. And they had this little baby. I've got this picture of the baby in my book, and he's just adorable. But the thing that really struck me is here they are. They're 50 feet up in the air. And this baby holler monkey is just like a human child. He's continually moving. He never stops. He climbs on mom's back, and then he's holding on to her chest, and then he tries to walk off on his own, and mom kind of grabs him back. And the patience that mother holler monkey had to have, you know, basically 24 hours a day with this baby that is never stopping to move. As as I was kind of joking in my book, it was amazing that mom didn't finally lose her patience and pitch him. (laughs) Uh, But he was just adorable. So that's the monkey part. The bat part comes from, we walked out to this abandoned farmhouse out in the rainforest. And a farmhouse in Costa Rica is nothing like a farmhouse in Minnesota, where my grandparents used to have a farm. And Mm -hmm. it was a big farmhouse. It's, It's a little, almost like a shed. But at one time, this area had been used as a farm where we were at. Now it's the rainforest has reclaimed it. And it was filled with bats. And you go in there and you can hear the flutter, 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 flutter with all these bats. So the challenge was, was to try to photograph these bats. And bats in that area aren't known for having rabies, but bats anywhere can have rabies. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, if you get scratched by one, well, you'd probably want to go and get rabies shots, go through the whole series of shots. And so you got to be careful. So there's that challenge of we were going in this farmhouse in this dark room and these bats are flying all around your head and trying to get pictures of them. And it was really difficult because it was so dark in there and I couldn't get my camera to focus. So I ended up calling my wife in and what she would do is she'd turn the flashlight on, on the bats. But if I took the picture with the flashlight on, the bats would be all washed out. So you couldn't have the flashlight on. And so she would shine the flashlight and I'd get all ready and then she'd turn the flashlight off and then I'd take the picture. Mm -hmm. And it took some practice, but we got some really great photos. And then the bat and eyelash, the eyelash comes from an eyelash viper, which is a poisonous snake. And they're called eyelash vipers because they've got these scales over their eyes that look like eyelashes. It was one of the number one animals on my list to find in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And we found one the first day, which was kind of fun. But what really became fun is later on, we had this little cabin we were renting in the rainforest. And we had just been out on this hike, this night hike, looking for all sorts of creatures. And we didn't have a whole a lot of luck. Uh, we found a few katydids and frogs and that sort of thing, but we were just a little discouraged. And we are walking the trail out to our little rainforest cabin. In fact, I had already reached the cabin, and all of a sudden I hear my wife behind me, Marty, Marty! And I turn around, and on this big leaf is this baby eyelash viper, a white eyelash viper. And so we named him Fred, and he stayed with us the entire time we were in Costa Rica. And it was really kind of cool because we take pictures of him. In fact, I have a children's book I'm working on, and now Fred is going to be the model for the snake and my children's book I'm working on. Nice. But so that's where the bat and eyelash comes from. So I try to come up with clever titles. For instance, the Everglades title is, I got cottonmouth with two Russians in the Everglades, but I swear I didn't inhale. So the story where I got that chapter title, I was in the Everglades. I was there alone in, in the Everglades. I was actually down in Florida speaking at some different colleges while I was down there. So my wife, Deb, wasn't with me on this adventure. And I'm driving out, and I see these two men out in the middle of this little dirt road. They've got their cell phone, and they're trying to take pictures with their smartphone of this animal on the ground. I walk up to the men, and I see it's a cottonmouth snake. Mm -hmm. And these men can barely speak English. They're men from Russia. Mm -hmm. And so they have no idea what a cottonmouth snake is. And I kind of have this whole code of ethics as somebody out in the wild. And one of my code of ethics is you never disturb somebody else's find and you never get in the way of somebody else. If they're taking a picture, you stay out of their way. You respect that they were there first. Mm -hmm. But in this case, with these men being from Russia, not knowing what the snake was and getting a little bit too close, it was one of the few times where I actually threw away my code of ethics. I told the men what the snake was and they quickly backed off. And so what ended up happening is traffic started picking up on the road a little bit. So one of the men directed traffic and one of the men filmed it with his smartphone. And then what I ended up doing is moving the snake off the road. And we had this little adventure of, of saving the snake's life because it certainly would have been hit by a car if we hadn't moved it off the road. And kind of the funny part of the whole thing is we were looking around for a stick to pick up the snake. I, I could have picked it up myself, but 
You know, when you're dealing with venomous snakes, even though I worked with snakes most of my life and I have confidence, you know, if you make a mistake, well, there's going to be a huge hospital bill. And it wasn't worth it for me to try to hand pick it up. So I'm looking to try to find the stick to pick it up. And we couldn't find a stick anywhere. We ended up finding what I called a muscular twig. And we ended up finally getting the snake off the road. But it took some time. So that's where that title came from. You do have to be careful working with snakes, even if you're a very experienced herpetologist. There's a story of a herpetologist at the Fields Museum in Chicago who was working with a boomslang, which is a tree Boom, snake. Yes, I know what they in are. In Southern yes. Africa, you know what that is. And he was bitten, and mm-hmm. he knew that he was going to die. And in the last moments of his life, he took notes to pass on to his colleagues as to what the signs and symptoms were right mm-hmm. before he died. Mm-hmm. It was pretty profound. Arctic and the Everglades and Puerto Rico. So let's, since Puerto Rico is the closest as far as geography is concerned. Let's talk about your experiences in Puerto Rico. I call the chapter Puerto Rico herping or I thought this was a girl trip. (laughs) And this was a fairly old trip. The first trip we did after I finished my first book. Deb and I, we had had all these wild adventures for the first book. And Deb wanted to do a girl trip, you know, with time on the beach and just kind of a relaxing trip, which isn't my kind of adventure. But uh, when she suggested Puerto Rico, I started doing a little research and I found out that there are Puerto Rican boas there, a type of snake, and they live in caves and they eat bats. And as soon as I found out about that, I was in. And this was 2007. And I had no idea, of course, that this was going to be in my new book. But when I learned about these Puerto Rican boas, I had to see them. But finding them isn't easy because they live in caves. And you know, how do you know what cave to go to? And I ended up finding a researcher who was doing research on bats. And he promised that he could take me to a cave that he had been to for 15 years straight and had only failed to see Puerto Rican boas once. So I was psyched. I was almost as close as you can get to guaranteed snakes. Mm-hmm. So we went to Puerto Rico and had this adventure. And the last part of the adventure was going to Calabrones Cave. And it's all locked up because Puerto Rico is it's quite a populated territory. So they want to keep people out. But once you get through the gates, it's like rainforest in the most remote regions of the world. And we hike out to this cave, and all of a sudden the rain starts pouring. And so we get to the edge of the cave, and while the rain is pouring, bats are pouring out of the cave. I have never seen so many bats in my life. It was dark out, but after you, you know, kind of get your eyes adjusted to the darkness, you can see along the edge of the cave, it's kind of in an open pit that goes down, and then the cave comes off the pit down a little bit lower. But you can see these Puerto Rican boas that are probably six feet long, hanging on to the rocks with their heads out in the air, trying to catch the bats as they make their exit for the night to go out and hunt. And it was just absolutely amazing to see these boas catching the bats. And I figured we'd never actually see one catch one, but we actually saw a couple different catches. In fact, I've got a couple photos in my book that actually show the boas with the bats in their coils. That was quite the experience to see that. And it was just amazing that they didn't fall. You had mentioned uh, boom slings earlier. Those are a snake out of Africa. And I remember being in Africa, walking with a guide and asking if he had ever seen boom slings. And he said, well, the only time I've ever seen boom slings is when they fall out of a tree. So I asked the researcher that was with us, do these boas ever fall 
off of the side of the caves. And he says, no, he's never seen one fall. And if you see the photos, you can see they're just barely holding on to just this little teeny crevice with their tails. And yet they're swinging out there and rapidly striking, trying to catch these bats as they're coming out. It was just amazing. Cool. I've seen two wormslangs in my childhood. Wormslang is an Afrikaans word. Worm is a tree. Okay. Slang is snake. Okay. So tree snake. Tree snake. And I saw one when I was a little kid. You know, you spend a lot of time climbing in the trees. And uh-huh. I came face to face with one as a little kid wow. on the branches. And that was probably one of the closest experiences I've had to being very close to death, but not even realizing it because, uh-huh. you know, you're a little kid. Uh-huh. And then the other time I was practicing yoga on our farm and one had fallen out of the tree. And you're lucky even if you do get to see them when they fall out of the tree because they're one of the fastest snakes. Really? They're super fast. Wow. When they're on the land. It's like uh-huh. they want to get back into a tree as soon uh-huh. as possible. Yeah, and they're beautiful snakes. Mm-hmm. They really are. Very small. Marty, in the second chapter of Endangered Edens called Arctic Eyewitness, you travel to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to the Prudhoe Bay oil field? Yeah, the Prudhoe Bay oil field, yes. Why did you choose those destinations? Well, it was kind of, I wanted to do a compare and contrast. This was going to be the trip that I was going to start my book on, but this was taking place back in 2008. It didn't happen exactly how I expected to happen, but the whole goal was to do an adventure crossing the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And then we were going to go back to Fairbanks, Alaska, rent a car, and then drive up to the Prudhoe Bay oil field. And to get to the Prudhoe Bay oil field, you take this road that became famous on the Ice Road Truckers TV show, this dirt road that goes all the way up to Prudhoe Bay. And I wanted to do a compare and contrast because, you know, when you hear politicians uh, and you hear oil company executives and they talk about drilling for oil up in the Arctic, you know, there's two different things that they say. One of their talking points is it's a bunch of nothing up there. There's nothing up there we can hurt. And actually, it's quite beautiful up there. And the other talking point you hear is the oil companies always say, well, if you let us drill up there, we're going to have this little teeny footprint. You're barely going to know we're there. So I wanted to go and document. All right, here is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. One of the most remote areas of the world, no roads, very little human interference. And then we're going to go just 120 miles to the west to Prudhoe Bay, the cesspool where the oil companies are. This was going to be the first chapter and was going to start my next book. But after we did that adventure, it was right about the time, the Republican National Convention, and you had Sarah Palin going, drill, baby, drill. And you had Michael Steele going, drill, baby, drill. And everybody at the Republican conventions, drill, baby, drill. And what they were talking about is they wanted to drill for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge of Alaska. And at that point, I I decided... I can't wait that long. If I put this in a book now, it's all going to be over by the time the book comes out because it takes a while to get a book out. You just don't put a book out the next week. And so what I ended up doing is I wrote a newspaper article that ended up getting picked up by newspapers all across the country, which kind of gave the real shortened version of what happened and what we saw up there. And now when I was finally ready to do a book, I took that shortened version and made it much longer, more detail, a lot more photos, and just kind of expanded the whole thing to really kind of drill home the difference between what the Arctic looks like where the oil companies are and what the Arctic looks like when you don't have oil companies around. 
Tell us about that. Well, first of all, when we did the Arctic Refuge, no sign of man anywhere. And we did this wonderful canoe trip down the Jago River. So basically, what the Arctic Refuge is, if you can imagine, kind of this long coastal plain, and it's hemmed in by the Brooks Range. It's, it's kind of a hairy trip to even get there. You fly from Fairbanks, mm -hmm. and you've got to switch planes twice, and then you've got to go over the Brooks Mountains. And if you look up statistics, and I actually have it in my book, the different statistics, in the United States, there's no place where there are more airplane accidents because it's so hairy to fly in this type of weather. So you know, we're flying over the Brooks Mountains, but you've got the wind coming off the Arctic Ocean blowing in the face of the airplane. In fact, while we were going over, there was a plane just ahead of us, and I had headphones on, and I was listening into the two pilots talking to each other, and the plane just ahead of us, the pilot had said, I ran out of engine. And basically what he was saying is he was at the point where the plane almost stalled because it wasn't powerful enough to fight the wind coming off the ocean. So anyway, you go over the Brooks Mountains, and you land on the coastal plain, and then we canoed all the way to the Arctic Ocean. And it took us basically a week. We weren't going fast. We probably could have done a lot faster if we wanted to, but we were seeing things along the way, all the wildlife and everything, going out on hikes. It was a terrific adventure. And then to go to Prudhoe Bay, we fly back, land in, in Fairbanks, and you rent a special vehicle with special tires and extra tires because the road you go on uh, is a dirt road, and it's it's not a good dirt road, and you get flat tires, that sort of thing. So anyway, we have this adventure of driving all the way back north again, and before we reached Prudhoe Bay, we could see this icky brown haze over Prudhoe Bay. It was, just, it was just sickening, and you could see it for miles. You knew you were coming to Prudhoe Bay. And then you arrive, and whichever direction you look, there are oil wells and, and oil rigs. It just goes on as far as the eye can see. And it was just such a stunning thing to see the difference between what nature looks like untouched by humans and what it looks like when you've got the oil companies there. And you can't get all the way into Prudhoe Bay unless you are accompanied. And so we ended up signing up for a tour. So we spent the night in this little town called Dead Horse, which is kind of part of Prudhoe Bay. And we got up in the morning, and you go to join this tour. And the tour is a rah-rah oil company tour. And first, you got to watch all these videos where they tell you how much they care for the environment and yada, yada, yada. You're looking at other people that are taking the tour, and you can see they're buying this. And it's like, well, look around. It's not like that at all. So anyway, we get on the bus, and we go through the oil fields. And you know, I've got a lot of pictures in my book showing what we saw as we drove through the oil fields. And then the highlight of the tour is you end up at this beach, if you want to call it a beach, at the Arctic Ocean. And they have a polar bear plunge where people can jump into the ocean and say they swam in the Arctic Ocean. So they stop the bus, and, and you know, the bus was probably only had like 15, 20 people on it. And people get out, they, they have their swimsuits underneath, and they you know, strip down to their swimsuits, and then they jump in the water. And this was the one time where my wife and I kind of got to walk off on our own. 
because we had no desire to swim in this. And we're walking along the shore, and you can see these black clumps. And, you know, I can't say for sure that it was oil, but it certainly looked like oil to me, it looked like part of an oil spill. It was just really disgusting looking. And, uh, you know, as I comment my book, it's like, don't these people understand what they're swimming in? So that was really an experience that I'll never forget to see what the oil companies had done there. We are in the studio with Marty Essen. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled on The Trail 103.3. Marty, do we have any documentation of the species that were there before the oil companies came in? Well, most of the species actually are still there. big internet meme you see is if you ever get in a Facebook argument with somebody about the Arctic Refuge and Prudhoe Bay and they're pro-oil, one of the famous pictures they'll show is they'll show the Alaska pipeline with caribou sleeping next to it. And they say, see, the caribou, they don't mind the oil companies. They love it here. And so it's become this counter argument that they use. But what they don't tell you is it depends on the time of year. If somebody put something horrible across Missoula, it's not like all of us in Missoula would move away. You know, this is your home. It's the same thing with the caribou. But you put the oil companies and the oil wells there, that's still their home. But where the big difference is, is when it comes to calving time, when the caribou are having the babies, because the caribou are very sensitive to humans at that time. So if it's not calving season, you're going to see the same caribou that you might see in the Arctic Refuge. During calving season, completely different because they're so skittish because they want to protect their babies. And so that's really where you get the problem and why it's hurting the caribou is during that season. And with any other species, too, when it's time to have the babies is really when it affects the animals the most. Marty, I'd like to speak to you about weather up there. You know, we are in Montana, so people think that they're pretty well in tune with cold weather. But Tell me about how the weather changes when you get a little bit further north up to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Well, what we did is we went up just before summer solstice. So we wanted to, you know, have that experience of daylight 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And the big difference, I think, is the weather changes a lot. We had a couple days where we were in the Arctic Refuge running around in T-shirts. And then as we got closer to the Arctic Ocean, we bundled up more and bundled up more. And, you know, as you're getting to the last couple days, as you're getting closer and that wind is coming off the Arctic Ocean, we all kind of look like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man because we had all our layers on and it got very cold. The other thing that happens is with the weather changing, you can't go to the Arctic Refuge and have a dead set, this is the day I'm going to land in the Arctic Refuge, and this is the day I'm going to leave, because there are times where the fog will come in or a storm will come in, and you just have to wait it out. It's not like, you know, if you break a leg or you have a heart attack or whatever, well, you're stuck there until the weather will allow an airplane to come in. And in our case, what we ended up doing is we actually, instead of having an airplane pick us up in the Arctic Refuge... Explorer Maps and The Trail Less Traveled bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. The shared vision between Explorer Maps and The Trail Less Traveled feels incredibly natural and full of great synergy. This exciting new collaborative partnership opportunity quickly evolved as we discovered the deep family roots we mutually share in both Africa and Montana. We invite you to travel the world with us as we bring cartography to life through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art.
As members of 1% for the planet, Explorer Maps donates a percentage of proceeds from every product sold to a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world. All of these organizations have similar missions as we do, focused on the conservation of wildlife and wild places. To date, Explorer Maps has donated more than $150,000 to more than 40 different organizations since they began in 2012. Through this unique relationship between Explorer Maps and the trail less traveled, we will continue our commitment toward connecting people and place by raising awareness for the conservation of our public lands. You can get involved by supporting Explorer Maps, a small family-owned business based in Missoula, Montana, with over 60 hand-drawn story maps. And be sure to use promo code MANDELA when visiting explorermaps.com. Marty, I'd like to talk to you now about the Everglades, and I would like to mainly find out about the wildlife experiences that you had in the Everglades and maybe some endangered species that are down there that perhaps made a comeback recently. Mm -hmm. You know, I love the Everglades. I've been there twice now. First time I went down was with my wife, and we canoed through the Everglades. I had a great adventure. This time I was down there alone. This is the only trip in my book that's a solo trip. And the reason for that is I'm a college speaker and I had a college show in Ohio and then I had four or five days off and then I had a college show in Miami. And what am I going to do with these four or five days off? Normally, if I've got four or five days off in between shows, I'll really work hard to find another college that I can speak at or maybe I'll come back home. The last thing I want to do is sit around in a hotel room. Well, with having a show in Miami, it made perfect sense. Well, let's, let's take those four or five days and let's go to the Everglades. And so I went down to Everglades City and rented this little hotel that I stayed at and just started exploring. And I didn't want to really get deep into the Everglades because I was going solo. And, you know, with me being a wildlife author and a travel author, the last thing I want to do is miss a show because I got lost. It would ruin my reputation. So there's this great road that you can take, and I've got the instructions in my book on how to get there, but this road that cuts through the Everglades, generally you have the road to yourself. So I spent uh, my first day just exploring that road, and then later on I found a state park, Fatahoochee State Park, which is a very... I don't want to say unpopular, but not well-known park. That's part of the Everglades as well. And I went there and, again, had the place to myself. So here you are in Florida with all the people. You can still get away from it all and go out and be in a place where you're not going to see a lot of people. The thing I like a lot about the Everglades is the wildlife is close in. Here I have a book that has a lot of photographs in it. And with the other chapters, you know, I use a, a digital SLR camera, a, a pretty darn good camera with a zoom lens. Well, when I'm in the Everglades, I can't take that with me because I've got all my gear for speaking at colleges. So I had to do this trip with this small little Canon pocket camera, which meant I really had to get close to the animals to get good pictures. And I've got some, some of the best pictures in the book I was able to take with this little camera, but it's because the animals are close. You know, I really, really really love alligators. Sometimes probably a little stupid on how close I get to alligators, but 
having worked with animals all of my life, you know, I can tell if an animal is getting stressed or if they're going to get aggressive, especially with my experience with reptiles. So I have a couple different times during my adventures where I would basically be sitting, you know, four or five feet away from a very large alligator. And I just sit there and kind of watch the alligator. One of the adventures, I'm sitting there watching this alligator. I'm sitting right next to this huge alligator. And all of a sudden, this Everglades racer, which is a small snake, about three feet long, comes right in front of me and heads right for the alligator. And I'm thinking, oh, the alligator's going to grab the snake. But it doesn't. And the snake goes right over the alligator's tail and then continues down through the underbrush. So I have this debate, do I stay with the alligator or do I follow the snake? Well, I figure, okay, the alligator's going to be there for a while. So I get down on my hands and knees and I follow this Everglades racer as it's hunting. And it was really kind of interesting because you could see it kind of, it was obviously it was picking up something, some scent. And snakes smell with their tongue. They've got a forked tongue. At the top of their mouth, they've got what's called a Jacobson's organ. And the forked tongue goes out, gets that smell, and puts it in the Jacobson organ. And that kind of gives them a direction on where that prey might be. And so you could watch a snake. It would follow the scent, and then it would stop. And sometimes it would go in a circle, and it always end up going the same way. So it allowed me to follow it on this hunt. And I followed it for, oh, for probably about a half hour as it was hunting. It was really kind of a neat experience to just feel like I was a snake on, out on a hunt. It was really a cool experience. And of course, you know, I went back and spent more time with the big alligator. Let's talk about some of the species in the Everglades that are endangered or were endangered and have made a comeback. Well, the Everglades is a great example, I think, of the good and the bad side of humans. You have the bad side of humans where humans basically hunted alligators and great egrets very close to extinction. But then the good side of humans where environmental laws were put into place and we brought back the beautiful egret. We brought back the beautiful alligator. And now they're fairly common. In fact, it's hard to go to the Everglades and not see alligators. It's hard to go and not see great egrets. But what is happening is global warming. And that's something that can't be stopped with a localized law. I mean, global warming it's global. And what is going to happen in the Everglades is everything is at a very low elevation. So as we start having more and more ice melt, well, you're going to have the oceans going higher and higher. And eventually, if we don't do something about global warming, well, the Everglades is going to be one of the first areas to flood. And of course, you've got salt water going in there. And salt water is not compatible with a lot of species. And you're going to have these species dying off, or we're going to have to, you know, physically pick them up and move them to another location. So the Everglades is definitely an endangered Edens because of that. What's the good side? <laughs> the good side is hopefully one of these days we here in America can get rid of this conspiracy theory that global warming is not real. It's something concocted by scientists so that they can get rich. Global warming is real, people. You know, I speak at colleges all over the country, which means I'm talking to people at universities who study global warming. And we are basically the only country left in the world where global warming is a controversy. And we do need to do something about it. And we need to do something about it pretty darn fast. You know, or we are going to have things like the Everglades flooding. And, you know, going back to my first book, Cool Creatures Hot Planet, one of the pictures that I have in my book and that I show when I'm speaking at colleges is this picture of the coast of Antarctica. 
And I don't think people really understand how big Antarctica is and just how much ice there is. But this picture that I have has people in this zodiac, which is a small rubber raft, at the very edge of Antarctica. And they look like a little ant. And then you see the cliffs of ice going up, and then you see going up even higher and higher and higher is just all this ice. Antarctica is huge. And you see that picture, and you can understand what would happen if that melts. Yes, it is going to raise the ocean levels. And people think, well, you know, it's the ice cube thing. It's not going to raise the ocean levels. Well, this ice is on land, and it's going to come off land, and so it's completely different than the conspiracy theory when people do the ice cube example. It does not apply to this. Global warming is a serious problem, and hopefully people will pay attention, and one of these days we're actually going to do something, and it can't be just one of these days. It has to be soon. Marty, what would you say to those people listening, or perhaps those people listening who know someone who says this, but you always hear... What can we do? We're screwed. You know, you just hear all the time, well, we're screwed. There's nothing we can do about it. What would you say to those people? Well, there's two things. Well, yeah, we might be screwed. We very well might be screwed. But you got to try. You got to try. One of the things you hear people say is, well, you know, the United States is just one country. And if we do something, well, there's still China and there's India and there's these other countries. And if they don't do anything, well, what we do in the United States doesn't matter. Well, what you need to understand is leadership. We saw it already when President Obama worked out and started doing things with China. Already China is starting to come around to doing things with global warming. So it's leadership. And, you know, the United States, we're supposed to be the greatest country in the world. Well, if we're going to be the greatest country in the world, we need to act like it. But acting like it is by having the leadership to do something. But, yeah, you need to do little things. You know, I ride my bike whenever I can instead of taking a car. Riding my bike isn't going to do a whole lot just me. But if you have millions of people riding their bikes, then it starts to make a difference. It is one of those things where everybody has to do their part. And if we all do our part, then it will make a difference. And it could be something very small, like only once a week you cut out cheese and milk. Exactly. And meat. Once a week. Once you know? a week, yeah. That can make a profound difference. Yeah, well, for me, for instance, I'm kind of this wannabe vegetarian. I really, really want to be a vegetarian. I'm close. One thing I did years ago is I completely gave up mammals. So I don't eat beef and I don't eat pork, you know, but I still will have fish occasionally and I'll have chicken occasionally. But I don't miss it. I don't miss it at all. It's sometimes just doing it and it doesn't take long and all of a sudden you don't miss it anymore. But you did like it before. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah, I did like it before. It was, so it was, it was a conscious decision, not only for the environment, but also just because I'm a big believer in you need to treat animals correctly. Mm-hmm. And I had seen just one too many videos of what happens to cows and what happens to pigs mm-hmm. in factory farms. And I just couldn't be part of that anymore. So I stopped. And I do understand that chickens probably also have miserable lives. And, and I need to get to be better at that. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm working on it. You know, and and you don't have to give it up entirely. Uh You know, for some people, that's impossible. Uh But if you were to just once a week, you know, green Mondays or whatever, just practicing once a week that you let go of that, you don't have to give it up entirely. You can still make a difference just doing that. Right. As an example, they brought awareness to shark fins and the shark fin industry in China. And some people think, you know, there's no way we can decrease that demand. But the demand of shark fin soup went down by 70% after that awareness was spread. Yep. So you can make a difference just by spreading awareness. Exactly. And, you know, we just need to speak out. 
Well, Marty, it was really nice to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being on it's the show. It's been great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I look forward to your next book. I know this one just came out, but you're working on your children's book? Yeah, I've got a children's book that I'm working on now and just found the artist that's going to do all the drawings for it. It's going to have a wildlife theme. Actually, I've got two of them. One is going to be an anti-trapping book for children. (laughs) That doesn't sound like much of a children's book, but believe me, the way I wrote it, it is going to be. And then the other one is going to talk about predators and the value of predators. And people don't realize just how important predators are. And if we kill off the predators, what happens to the rest of the ecosystem? Well, good on you for bringing awareness to the new generation. Thank you. Marty, let's end the show with three outdoor adventure tips. Three outdoor adventure tips. I guess the first one would be if you're out in the wild, but there are people out there as well, is respect the space of other people. And I guess let's add on to that a second part, and that is respect the animals. You need to give the animal space and be real aware if they're stressed out and then give them space. The other thing is just it's important to get out there and see things because if you don't get out there and see things, it's harder to appreciate what is going to be gone If you let fossil fuels corporations go wild, you know, what are we going to lose or what are we going to lose if we overhunt? So I think the only way you can really appreciate that is to get out there and see it for yourself. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series, which premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, Streaming live online at trail1033.com with a podcast version of the show available everywhere. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world. And by the time you hear this episode, I will be en route to Zambia for a collaborative project with Game Rangers International. I'll be circumnavigating the country, interviewing rangers and communities who are working on the ground in order to prevent the extinction of elephants. This incredible project was made possible due to the generous contributions of Explorer Maps. Explorer Maps is a small family business based here in Missoula, Montana. And moving forward, I'm very excited to collaborate with Explorer Maps on more projects in Africa, as well as here in Missoula. I'm happy to share with you that Explorer Maps has hired me on as their lead storyteller. The shared vision between Explorer Maps and the trail less traveled feels incredibly natural due to our deep roots in both Africa and Montana, as well as our shared vision to connect people and place through storytelling, conservation, culture, history, and art. Moving forward, we plan to bring cartography to life. Save the date! On Saturday, November 18th at 7 p.m., I'll be giving a free multimedia adventure presentation highlighting my current project in Zambia with Game Rangers International. This is also the grand opening weekend for Explore Maps at their new storefront on the corner of Inez and 3rd Street. You can find out more information on our upcoming projects and opportunities to help support the planet by visiting the Explore Maps page at traillesstraveled.net. I'm going to close this evening's episode with the voice of my hero, David Attenborough, reading the final paragraph of 
The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. This audio comes courtesy of BBC Earth. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers having been originally breathed by the Creator into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege, and with privilege comes responsibility. I would like to thank you in advance for speaking up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never spent the night with a mosquito.